The story is told of a clergyman who was watching his congregation dwindle in size over time, and this began to really get on his nerves. And one, when one particularly faithful woman in the congregation didn't seem to be coming to worship on a regular basis anymore, it just got to him and in some ways sort of unhinged him. And he decided that he was going to do something about this so that on a particular Sunday morning when his associate pastor was preaching that day, he left the church building and he drove over to the house of this woman. And as he pulled into the driveway and he saw her car right there in the driveway, he just warmed with glee at anticipating, seeing the look on her face when he knocked on the door and she opened it up and she saw it was him. But several loud raps on the door produced no response whatsoever. And walking back from the door, he noticed the sound of music coming from the backyard. So he hustled around the side of the house, and he came around the final corner, and he looked at this beautiful garden backyard and a pool there and an empty lounge chair, and on a table next to it, a half drunk glass of iced tea with beads of sweat rolling down the side and the telltale signs of wet footprints leading up to the house. And he walked up to the back screen door and once again pounded on the screen door and called out the woman's name several times and there was no response whatsoever. Furious that he was not able to confront her as he wanted to, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out one of his business cards and he grabbed a pen and he wrote down on the little card just this citation from the scriptures. And the citation was this. Isaiah 65 verse 12, which reads, I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight, and you chose what displeases me. And then sticking it in the crack of the back door, he went on about his business. Well, the next morning came, and the pastor arrived at his uh, own office and found, much to his surprise, that there was now another card stuck in the crack of his door. And it was from this same parishioner. And he pulled out the card and it simply read, Dear Sir, Genesis 3.10, yours fondly. And more than a bit miffed that this woman had enough command of the scriptures to respond to his note in kind, he opened in his Bible to that particular verse of scripture and a flush of embarrassment came over him as he remembered the empty chair and the half-drunk glass of ice water and the footprints leading to the door, and he read these words, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I want to think with you today about that verse of Scripture and, in fact, think with you alongside of the rest of our preaching team 
on that particular idea over the course of these next several weeks. I want to think together about how it is that scripture tells the story of our lives. We're going to unpack together the world of meaning behind those words and ponder together how our lives could become even better than they may already be if we can only dare to risk being more vulnerable with one another than we already are. And to get at this subject, it's crucial, I think, that we get a grasp on how God originally intended life to work and to, to get an understanding together of what it is that has gone wrong with that and finally to appreciate how it gets repaired. To go after this subject, I want to take us back today to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles with you, you may find it useful to have those open. We're going to be looking at some of the texts uh, described in that portion of the Bible. Suffice to say that the Bible tells us that in the beginning, which by the way is Bible speak, for in that dimension in which God's will is clearly seen and completely done. You know, when you hear that phrase, in the beginning, in creation narratives, it's basically saying, going back to that moment of clarity, when it was obvious what God was doing and it was clear what he hoped would, we would do in response. In the beginning, the purposes of God were being done in such a way that life was not just good, but very, very good. And the book of Genesis portrays the ideal state of humanity in terms of a glorious garden, uh, a, a fecund, fertile, abundant, beautiful, uh, temperate, uh, plenteous garden. And in this garden, there walked a man and a woman who were, the Bible says, both naked and they felt no shame. Now, I want to think just a little bit further with you about those terms, naked and shame, because they are critical to our appreciation of what God intended at the start of everything for human life. Do you remember those days uh, when your kids were younger, or maybe they're in that season right now, or perhaps you recall the time when your siblings were, were younger, or when you were younger, or your nieces and nephews were. You, you've been to the place where the little ones are toddling around the house or out by the pool in nothing but their birthday suits. You remember those days? Right? I have got, Amy and I have got pictures of all three of our boys in that condition, which we saved to blackmail them in critical moments. Actually, no, on pain of death, we have sworn never to reveal those pictures except maybe at their wedding rehearsal dinner. But it's depending on how they've been behaving. No, not at all. But, but my point is, we save those pictures as parents because in some ways, there is nothing quite so beautiful as that naked innocence. When we're just little ones, able to run around, unfettered, unafraid, right, of how we look and how we'll be perceived and experienced by others. Just living from the purity of our being. Well, that is something of what 
the Bible is trying to describe as the original human condition when it says they were naked. They were both naked. But there's also a deeper meaning in, in this, such that what I think the Bible is getting at here is not only the kind of innocence we associate, physical innocence we associate with children, but also the kind of emotional, spiritual transparency we associate with the most pure-hearted kinds of saints. I, I think of my grandmother in her 90s. She's gone now, but I remember back in the days when Granny, as we called her, Gigi, as our kids called her, um, was in her 90s. She was so far past needing to impress people, right? She was so far past ever trying to perform for other people that she was just living out of the authenticity of who she was in this season of life. And, and, and God had shaped her in such ways over the course of time that who she was was pretty cool by age 90 plus. You know, and she had wisdom to share, and she shared it, you know, in just unvarnished, true terms. She spoke the truth in love to us in ways that nobody else ever dared to. She could talk about the messy parts of her life and the things she'd, she'd failed at and the mistakes that she'd made with just kind of a, an openness that was so amazing that I just rarely found in anybody else. My grandmother lived nakedly in her 90s. I know that may not be a good visual picture, but I'm just telling you, she was never more beautiful to me than, than in that particular season of her life uh, when she was vulnerable, really vulnerable. So, so this is something of what Genesis is getting at when it says that they were both naked. They were transparent. They were pure-hearted. They just lived out of the reality of who God had made them to be. But Genesis goes on to tell us that they were not only naked in these twin, twin senses that I've been talking about, they also felt no shame. Now, to really appreciate what that is telling us, it's important to understand the difference between guilt and shame. Because we get these two terms sometimes confused, and there's a crucial difference about them. Uh, I was reading uh, recently in an, uh, an article from uh, Psychology Today, which was on this particular subject. And what the magazine suggested is that guilt is our ability to recognize that our actions have hurt someone else. And we would say in Christian terms, have offended God, injured God, wounded God in some way, or wounded other People. Guilt is the ability to recognize that, that something we've done has had this damaging impact on other people. It is the capacity to empathize, to feel something of that person's pain, and to actually feel remorse for having caused it. Guilt, this capacity to recognize, empathize, feel remorse, is... Um, a sign of health, okay? It's a sign of emotional health. Guilt is good. Guilt is good because it's, it's an awareness that we have crossed a moral or a relational boundary of one kind or another 
Uh, guilt is that bad feeling that, that drives us, invites us to, to do something creative in the face of it, right? To confess it or, or to try and make amends or, or to ask for help from somebody in trying to repair the mess. Guilt is good. Shame is bad. I want to tell you why. If guilt is the awareness that we have done something bad, shame is the feeling that we are irreparably bad. We are irreparably bad. Uh, in other words, Shame is this sense that there is something that is so wrong with us that no confession will satisfy, no uh, amends can possibly make up for, and nobody can fix. Nobody can fix it. Shame is the sense that we are hopelessly stained. And that if people could see that, how stained we are, there is no doubt they would have to judge us and reject us. And so the only thing we can really do with shame is hide. We've got to hide that part of us. Not only what we've done, but who we really are. Are you getting this? Do you see this distinction between these two emotions? Okay. That's really important that we understand this. And now we go back to the story here. Let's go back to Genesis. The book of Genesis pictures God's original intention as a life where Adam and Eve, who, by the way, stand for us. I know we can, we can read the Adam and Eve story in one way, as, as a, a moment in time long ago at the very beginning of things, or we can see it at the same time as a story that describes all of our stories, right? That Adam and Eve are us. Uh, and they're living at this point nakedly and without any kind of shame. They have this completely unguarded relationship with God and with one another. They are not protecting themselves, defending themselves, covering themselves, hiding anything. They can be stewards of the creation without needing to control it. They can be respecter of the boundaries and the guidelines that God has laid out without needing to rewrite the rules for themselves. They can live uh, as creatures without needing to be the creator himself. They can be, in short, vulnerable beings, naked, dependent beings, unashamed of that for one reason above all else. There's a reason why they can be this way. It's because they know they are irrevocably loved and provided for by a good and gracious and amazing God. And that just conditions them for this kind of life of freedom and authenticity and openness. Human beings are like these trusting kids in the hands of a parent who is perfectly 
caring and competent in every single way. And this vulnerability in God's hands is one of the most beautiful things about paradise. Until something goes terribly wrong. As it continues to go terribly wrong for many of us in our times as well. The Bible says, now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Do not get hung up on an image of a talking snake, okay? Those of you who immediately sort of went, because that is to miss the point. The image that we're being given here in Genesis is that amidst all of this amazing abundance and love and grace and freedom, there is something very dangerous wriggling in the grass. Okay, the, the, the message of this picture is that, that, that in the midst all of the goodness of life, there is something dangerous lurking about which we have to be enormously careful. As a child must be careful when moving through the tall grass. This is the, the idea here. And the voice of this evil, of this threat in the story, comes hissing and spitting out the ultimate lie. The most dangerous, destructive idea ever spat out by Satan. And this is the lie. You cannot really trust the love of God. <laughs> Don't be fooled by the abundance you're seeing. Do not rely on all your past experience of grace. You can't really trust the love of God. You think he's for you. He's not. He is for himself. He is keeping stuff from you. You know that fruit over there behind the fence? The one that is especially pleasing to the eye? You ought to have that. He does not want you to have it. Why? Because he knows that if you have it, you will become like God's. And you won't need him. You cannot really <laughs> trust God. One of the most mysterious things, and in fact it's so mysterious that, that theologians have called this the mystery of iniquity, is that amidst all of the abundance of Eden, all of the beauty and the perfection of the communion between God and human beings up to this point, that seed of mistrust took. I mean, it really, it went down deep. And the Bible says, and their eyes were opened. They, they ate of the fruit that the serpent spoke of, and their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid 
from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to humanity, where are you? Where are you? And humanity answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. When humanity took from this fruit, in some way that I suppose will never plumb fully, it acquired the knowledge of good and evil. Whether as an act after effect or simply a natural consequence of having violated the will of God, humanity gained a capacity to realize there was good and there was evil. And they had fallen onto the evil side. And, and, and it, was, it was like suddenly being given this one of those magnifying mirrors with the especially bright lights that sometimes we use to put on uh, uh, makeup. And, and you know, if you've used one of those, you don't want to be really close to that for very long, right? It's not pretty what you see in those mirrors, right? All humanity could now see with this knowledge was how unpretty they were, how, how cold and vulnerable in a negative sense, how, how broken and shivering was the life of a human being that had turned their back on God, on the source of life and love and laughter and light and how awful that life was. And, and, and that awareness of that terrible independence was too much for Adam and Eve. I have this, this theory, I have this belief that Adam and Eve could have at still, still at this point done something creative about it. I have this theory that, 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 that when God asks, where are you? They, that could have been the, the trigger that would have activated guilt, creative guilt that moved them to confess and make amends and, and seek the power of God to repair I have this feeling that when God asks the question, where are you, it isn't because he doesn't know. Right? He has not lost his GPS lock on the only two people in creation, has he? He knows exactly where they are. I remember I ran away from home when I was a little boy. I ran all the way to the end of the driveway. I hid in a bush. It wasn't a very big bush. My mom and dad would go back and forth, you know, kind of look at me and... Well, when he asks the question, who is it that he's trying to help locate themselves? Human beings. It's just like the questions Jesus asked. Do you want to be well? Who do you say that I am? What is it that you want me to do for you? These are all questions trying to help us locate ourselves in relationship to him. And, and there was, without a doubt, I think at this point in the story, still time for Adam and Eve, as there is for us within the grace of God, to answer when he phrases that question to us, something like this, I'm right here, God. I'm here in the middle of this mess, Lord. I have really screwed up. 
I'm so sorry I did this. I have hurt you. I have injured this other person. I've, I've, I've broken myself in some painful kind of way. Oh, Lord, I need your help. Please help me fix this. And I believe that the pattern of God in those circumstances is always to rush in with his forgiving and healing grace. I mean, go back to the stories of David. <laughs> right? David took the forbidden fruit. He came to God in Psalm 51. He confessed everything. He repeats the this, this story in Psalm 139. And, and God restores David's to the best of, his, uh, uh, of the human capacity for restoration. God restores him. I think that if they've been able to confess and repent with complete vulnerability, if they've done the guilt walk in that creative sense, they, this fall could have been arrested and maybe even Eden restored. But the serpent's lie, it had worked too well. It was just, it was too effective. It, 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 the cancer had gotten in too deep, into the bone of these people. And, and no longer really fully trusting the love and the grace and the goodness of God. No longer trusting, they may have trusted in it still, but no longer believing it was large enough to address their condition. They fell further and further and further into shame. We've not only done something bad, we are bad in an irrevocable way, in a way that no confession can satisfy, no amends can make up for, and no one can fix. And when he finds out, when God finds out, there's only one thing coming our way. It's going to be judgment. It's going to be rejection. So we've got to go and hide. We've got to cover up with fig leaves. We've got to run into the woods. We've got to blame somebody else. The woman you put here with me told me to eat. The serpent Deceive me. And I ate. In countless ways, I think, this story keeps happening. <laughs> this archetypal story just keeps being our story. And, and in the ways that shame, the devil's greatest, one of his best tools, <laughs> the way that shame has, has worked its way into us all and the various strategies that we've then ad adopted to, to cover up, to run, to blame, are just too numerous to go into today, but we're going to look at some of them in the weeks ahead. But it's not our problem, this big problem that we're identifying today that I want to send you out with. I, don't, I know 
uh, you're probably already thinking, gosh, why did I get up and come to church today? This is pretty heavy. I want to send you out with your focus on how the problem gets fixed, or at least a piece of how it gets fixed. Um, one of my favorite authors for many years has been a, a, a fellow pastor by the name of Robert Fulgham. You probably know him as the guy that wrote everything I really needed to know I learned in kindergarten. And uh, one of my favorite uh, stories of his is, is one in which he describes an experience he had one beautiful uh, August or, or autumn afternoon um, as the neighborhood kids chose his yard uh, to play a game of hide-and-seek in. And, and Fulgham tells the story like this. Did you ever have a kid in your neighborhood who always hid so good that nobody could find him? We did, he says. And after a while, we'd give up on him, and we'd go off, leaving him to rot wherever he was. <laughs> Sooner or later, of course, he would show up all mad because we had stopped looking for him, and we would get mad because he obviously wasn't playing the game the way it was supposed to be played. No matter what, however, the next time, he'd hide too good all over again, and he's probably still hidden out there someplace, for all I know, writes Fulgham. As I write this, the neighborhood game is going on. And there is a kid under a pile of leaves in the yard just underneath my window. And he's been there a long time, and everybody's about to give up on him. And, and I considered walking out and going over to the base and saying, Psst, he's under the leaves. And then I thought about maybe setting the leaves on fire, you know, to get him to go out. But I finally just decided to open my window, and I leaned out, and I said, Get found, kid! Get found! And then Fulgham goes on, and he tells this story that just slays me because I had the same experience. My, my roommate in college, Ira Wolmer, I love this guy became a doctor, and he developed cancer, and he never told anybody, except his wife. And Fulgham describes the same story. A man I know found out last year he had terminal cancer. He was a doctor and knew about dying, and he didn't want to make his family and friends suffer through that with him, so he kept his secret and died. Everybody said how brave he was to bear his suffering in silence and not tell anybody, and so on and so forth. But privately, his family and friends said how angry they were that he didn't need them, that he obviously didn't trust their strength, and it hurt so much that he didn't say goodbye. He hid too well, writes Fulgham. Getting found would have kept him in the game. Hide-and-seek, grown-up style, wanting to hide, needing to be sought, confused about being found. I don't want anyone to know. What will people think? I just don't want to bother anyone. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
Do you know anyone like that? The answer is, you do. You know me. You know you. Our disease comes in a lot of different forms. But what I want you to remember as you go out today is good news. There is someone who has not stopped looking for you and isn't planning to give up anytime soon. Where are you? God keeps shouting. Where are you? Not because he doesn't know, but because the one precondition for receiving the love and grace of God. Please remember this. If you remember nothing else I've said today, the one precondition, the necessary essential condition for receiving the renewing power and love and grace of God is that you have to be vulnerable. And to receive grace and love from others at the level you could, you have to be vulnerable. You just have to be willing to be found. And so as we go on this journey, in the coming days, here's my encouragement to you. Get found, kid. Put your trust in the amazing love and grace of Almighty God and be found. Let's pray together. Great God of all creation, you have revealed yourself time and again in the scriptures and the history of Israel, in the history of the church that you keep reforming, and ultimately in the person of your son. You have revealed yourself as the good shepherd who goes out in search of the lost. Because each one is precious to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Find us where we hide. Show us that to be nakedly dependent upon you and courageously vulnerable before others is to be clothed in splendor indeed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.